Well, good morning. It's great to be here. And uh, as I said in the earlier service, if I didn't go to Amberco, I'd come to Zion. In fact, I'm thinking of coming to Zion. <clears throat> Life would be much easier. Joking. I uh, just thank God, as Leon said, for the relationship that we have. Um, I want to honor him. Um, uh, uh, an intelligent, inspirational individual who often, when I hear him speak and the things he says, wish that I was as clever. But um, he's a good man, and uh, I love him dearly. And I'm sure you do too. I really feel um, stirred before I talk. What I'm going to talk about this morning is open and empty spaces. Open and empty spaces. But before I do that, I really feel stirred just to read a few words, and maybe just read a few more words than I read first thing uh, in the first service this morning. But I'm just struck by how important the Word of God is, isn't it? The Word of God. All things come into their being through the Word of God. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, you know this. This chapter highlights for us the hall of fame in terms of faith, doesn't it? Incredible things that uh, people of God have done are recorded here. I just want to read a few verses. Um, Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not yet seen. For by it men of old gained approval. I I am so struck that God's approval doesn't exist in a material realm where I can measure specific outcomes. (laughs) So even though we read about Noah and the amazing story of a man who built a boat... What is recorded there is just a little bit of his life story, but he was approved of not because of the boat he made and the animals he collected, but because of an unseen faith in God. His approval existed in the realm of the unseen. For by faith we understand that the words were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things which are visible. It's a complicated verse that, isn't it? But I want to make a declaration for you as individuals and as a church that your future is not made out of the things that are visible. And so often our lives are connected to a visible realm, to the things that we can touch and feel and measure, take photographs of, put on an overhead or send in a letter. But you see, the truth is that all things that are of any value come out of the invisible. They are. They're birthed or prepared by the word of God in an invisible realm. And just one last scripture as I was thinking about this. I read it the other day and was so struck by it. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Listen to this. All things came into being by him and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. Mm-hmm. I want to declare for your life and for your corporate life as a church and for our corporate life as the church of Jesus Christ that there is a source of creativity that hoards our future and his name is Jesus. And whatever you might face, whatever you might hold on to, whatever you might have received, whatever you might have in a physical material realm, there is something that exists beyond that realm from whom all things flow. It's an invisible realm, a realm we don't see, a realm we can't touch, a realm we're not often involved in, but it's a realm of creativity that comes from God. And so your future is not in the things that are visible. 
but in the invisible, creator of heaven and earth. Nothing comes into being. Nothing. All things come out of the word of God. It is the birthplace for everything. For your life, for my life, for our life. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The word then becomes flesh and dwells among us. Doesn't it? We need, don't we, for God to come and give birth to something, but its origin is always in the invisible, not the visible. And I don't know about you, but my life is so tied to the visible realm. But God help us to disconnect from the visible and connect by faith to you. For the way our life gains a seal of approval is not by the things that I do, say, and produce, but by something that exists in a realm that can't be seen. And Lord, my life not, doesn't count for the things I do. It counts for the one I believe in. Do you see that? Marion said to me the other day, it's a bit off track, not what I'm going to speak about. Marion said to me the other day, my life, it's my wife, my life really counts for nothing. I've done nothing. It's an absolute rubbish. Your life doesn't count for what you can count. It counts for the one you love and have your faith in. You need nothing else other than faith in God. You know, well, I, haven't, I haven't preached to masses. I, haven't, I don't counsel people. All of that really, in one sense, doesn't matter. Do you see what I'm saying? What's most important is the one I love. His name is Jesus. And so the approval that exists in my life is not by the things I do, but the one I love. Because it's not about me, you see. It's always about him. And when we come to touch and learn to rely on the visible, we learn to actually rely on our own skill and ability and not on the God we serve, who is the God of the miraculous, the God of the invisible. Amen. So, Father, we just thank you for your word. Thank you for the word of God. We thank you for Jesus, who was the word, who was in the beginning and is now. But in a midway point, you came and revealed yourself in a God who walks among us. And I pray that, Lord, as we come around your scripture, that we would feel and sense you walking among us as we join together in reading, understanding what you have to say through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to... To Luke chapter 4. I want to talk this morning, as I've said, about open and empty spaces. Uh, the Bible describes these places as desert or wilderness. These are places, what I would call uh, the margins. They're dry, barren places. Uh, often at each turn, the geography, what you look at, where you are, how you feel, looks exactly the same. But I believe that uh, sometimes um, uh, God needs to take us to open and empty spaces in order for him to reveal himself in a fresh and a new way to us. But not just reveal himself to us, but for us to understand more about what we're really like. So it's a place of a revelation about who I am as well as who he is, but must always begin with a revelation of who he is. And so we read, uh, we're going to read about Jesus' wilderness experience, we're going to read about John's and uh, another scripture in Hosea later. But let's look at at, uh, Luke chapter 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, 
Open and empty places are a place that God takes us to. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during these days. When they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me. And I can give it to whom I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up as you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So here's Jesus. We'll come to this scripture more specifically in a minute. Led into an open and empty place uh, where he encounters both the enemy, but he also encounters God. And I really sense uh, points in my life, I don't know about you, but I feel like I've occupied an empty and open space, a wilderness experience. And these spaces, I have to say, are not about punishment. Often we think when we find ourselves in an open and empty space, when we find, find ourselves in what I describe as an in-between place, we often think we've done something wrong. It's because of stuff I've done. And, uh, and we, feel, we can sometimes feel guilty, we can sometimes feel a huge sense of sort of condemnation. But I think there are things that we learn in the open and empty spaces that we can't learn in the full and occupied. Emptiness is a part of God's plan. Uh, the cross is as much about emptiness as it is about fullness. You'll remember the verses, I think, in Philippians chapter 2 goes something like this. Have, your, have this attitude in yourselves that, is also, that also existed in Christ Jesus. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he, what's the next word? Emptied himself. He emptied himself. You see, we, we often preach a gospel where the, where the cross is a, is a place of fullness. Well, of course, in one sense it is, but it's also a place of emptiness. And there are times that we have to come to when we have to understand what it is to be empty as well as full. But I think it's Romans chapter uh, 6, verse 5 that says this. If you are united with him in the likeness of his death, so shall you be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. There are points at which uh, God takes us to open and empty places in order for us to understand what it is to be empty. Because that's a part of the cross. Because there's no way we can, uh, we can have the second part of Romans 6, verse 5 unless we have the first part. See, there's no way you can know the resurrection life of God unless first you have a comprehension and understanding of what it is to be crucified with Christ. And so God sometimes takes us to a place of emptiness where he spills us out. Do you know what I mean? I'm sure many of you have some of these tins. We have a roses tin. And in this roses tin is all the things that don't fit anywhere else. Do you know what I mean? Radiator key. Well, it's normally in there, but I can never... <laughs> And it's always in another tin somewhere. And it's full of nails and bits that you bought for things that you had to keep just in case you needed that particular set of wheels or something. Do you have one of those? Or a drawer? And uh, yeah, loads do. <laughs> yeah. And so, really, <clears throat> there are times when the only way to find something is to take the roses tin and empty it all over the floor, isn't it? 
And then you can, you've got a bit of space to explore things. There are spaces in our lives that God takes us and asks us to empty ourselves in order that we might fully explore both who he is and who we are. And we've got to be prepared to, to face the empty spaces as well as the full spaces. We live largely in a consumer-driven culture, don't we? And church is no different. We, can't, we, we often shop for something in God, don't we? We come to be filled. We come for a healing. We come for this. We come for, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying Jesus doesn't want to do some of that stuff. But if we're not careful, uh, we become um, uh, too much like the world in which we live. And the spirit of the world really does take over our entire life, appetite, aspirations, etc., etc. And I think just there are sometimes when we have to, when we find in this open and empty space, a place where we have to empty ourselves of some of that stuff and understand the cross is a place of emptiness. It's a, it's a place of loneliness. It's a place of anguish. It's a place of hurt. Those places are holy places. I believe that totally. They are holy places. For the joy set before him endures the cross. How do I react in those open and empty spaces? There was a wilderness act passed by the U.S. Senate in 1964. It's only the Americans that could have a wilderness act, isn't it? But uh, they have one. And, and I just want to read you um, a, a sentence from this wilderness act that really describes, I think, what the wilderness is in terms of a place sometimes. A wilderness in contrast with those areas where man and his own works dominate the landscape is hereby recognized as an area where the earth and its community of life are untrammeled by man, where man himself is a visitor who does not remain. Let me read that again. A wilderness, in contrast to those areas where man in his own work dominates the landscape, is hereby recognized as an area where the earth and its community of life are untrammeled by man, where man himself is a visitor and does not remain. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But I quite like that thought that we need spaces and places where the work of our own hands don't dominate, but that where we have a freedom to explore what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. Let's not despise the wilderness, but embrace it. If God took Jesus to an empty and barren place, place in the margins, a place in the backwaters. So sometimes God takes us. Let me share with you four things about this open and empty space or four things about the wilderness or the desert. Maybe I can say the first is a place of preparation, a place of preparation in many ways. Turn with me, you're probably in the same pages as we read Luke chapter 4 to Luke chapter 3. And uh, we're going to read about John's experience uh, in the wilderness, open and empty space. Verse 3 says this. <clears throat> now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was the tetrarch of the region of that place, and that other guy and the other guy were tetrarch of Avelini. In the high priesthood of Ananias and Kephaia, uh, um, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Here we are, everything's organized, everything's arranged, government's in place, it's a done deal, everything is absolutely as it should be. Uh, there 
uh, immovable governmental structures. Uh, it's all set up in place. It works. It's an empire that's worked for many, many years. But in the middle of everything that's set up and perfect and has its appropriate shape, form, style and structure, God chooses to speak to a man in the wilderness. The word of the Lord comes to John. And John comes out of the wilderness with a prophetic cry about a different kingdom. And uh, sometimes our lives look as if it's got all the order, either corporately, and I'm thinking maybe even now about the situation you face as a community of God's people here in Hell's Zion with your building project. It might all look like a done deed. It might look like it's all in place, everything's fixed, and nothing can change. I believe that from the wilderness comes a prophetic cry that says everything can change. For there's coming a coming king whose kingdom will be established the like of which will never know an end. And we need to call out of the wilderness often a prophetic cry comes. And that prophetic cry comes in a number of ways. That prophetic cry comes and it says this. That the mountains shall be made low and the valleys shall be lifted up. Now, we could look at mountains and valleys, as I'm sure you've done many, many times, either individually or corporately, uh, until the cows come home. But I would say a couple of things. Let me say one thing about mountains. Mountains are a place of the revelation of God's presence. Isn't that right? He who has clean hands, who shall, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? You know that great psalm, don't you? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands, Psalm 24, and a pure heart. So, what's he going up the hill for? A revelation of God's presence. Where does Jesus take his three best mates and is transformed as God seems to touch and occupy the top of that mountain? He takes them up a mountain. Where does Jesus withdraw? He goes up a mountain. Where did Moses receive the law? A mountain. Where is Jesus going to return? He's going to return on a mountaintop. Do you see? The mountains are a place of the revelation of God's presence. And the valleys. What do the valleys speak of? The valleys. As well, should do it like that. What do the valleys speak of? The valleys speak of a place of emptiness, a place of loneliness. Often where the shadow of death occupies it. But there's a prophetic cry that says there's going to come a place where God is going to reveal himself in an awesome way. Where the valleys will be lifted up and what was unattainable for the masses will suddenly be attainable. As God reveals himself to the world. Amen. I declare over Zion that your mountains will be made low and your valleys will be lifted. That in hell Zion there will be a revelation of the presence of God the like of which it's never seen. Why? Because there are people with a prophetic cry in their wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord. Mountains also speak of power, institutional power. They speak of empire. Uh, they speak of authority. They speak of control. Uh, they speak of governmental power, don't they? You know, where all people are going to come to the mountain of the house of the Lord, it says, because that's going to be a place where the law is going to go forth. It's a place of authority and government. You know... And the valleys are the place of the marginalized, the weak. Those that have no hope. Those that have no future. But the prophetic cry that comes out of the wilderness is this. That power will come down. And those that are in the marginalized, weak, etc. will be touched by the presence of God in a new way. You see, when the power comes on the day of Pentecost. Interesting thought. I've got time to talk as much as I'd like to about power. But power normally comes at the top of a triangle, doesn't it? The person that sits at the top of an organization is the man with power control. He has more wealth, more prosperity, more opportunity, better health, etc., etc. And normally uh, our aspiration is to climb the triangle from the bottom to the top till you become powerful. Amen. We have church structures that are just the same. Where we all aspire to be the senior pastor. 
But often that can be the case, can't it? See, when the Holy Spirit comes, what does Jesus say? Wait, number one. Number two, when the Holy Spirit comes, what do you do? He'd pour out it on all flesh. When the power comes, when God distributes power, it comes to the bottom of the triangle. Because it's sons and daughters, those despised women. Slave and free, what sort of gospel is that that we're going to talk about? See, when the power of God comes, it touches the bottom of the triangle, not just the top. And so I really sense, God, will you bring your power among your people in a way that transforms every life, not just a few. Amen? May God do that. May God take the marginalized and weak and all your aspiration and vision for that in terms of Hales Owen. And God, will you display your power? This is not about us, is it? This is about God. It's a place of preparation. The other great thing, let's read this verse here, verse 3. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance. The great thing about open and empty spaces or wilderness or desert is that they're places of transition. So if you feel this morning like I'm in a desert, I feel like I'm in an empty and open space. I feel like fairly much like when I look around, it's all dry, barren, arid. Let me tell you, it's a place of transition. You will not stay there. There is a place to come into. And uh, here John comes into a place and reveals his message. I want to encourage you this morning. I speak to myself as well. (laughs) That the place, the wilderness I find myself in, the wilderness you find yourself in is a place of transition, but, but a place of the revelation of God, but a place of transition. You will come out and into something new. And I pray that for you too, corporately as a church. Secondly, it's a place that changes us, not just me. It changes us, not just me. Of course, our our open and empty space, our wilderness space, is certainly about us. It carries personal significance, but it also carries corporate significance. Uh, It's never just about me. It's never just about you. Uh, And this is so important, you know. John's story is John's story, but John's story fits into a much bigger story. It's the story of Jesus. And we'll talk about Jesus' story in a minute, but Jesus' story is Jesus' story, but it fits into a much bigger story. And that's the redemptive story that God tells from the beginning of time until the end of time. We all fit in and find our place in something far bigger than ourselves, and we have to understand that. And that's largely not something that's easy to absorb in a world that's largely uh, driven, uh, I believe, uh, by a, um, a principality of individualism. You know, sometimes we think about principalities and powers as big grey things that hang over particular areas, and I believe that's true to a degree. But I believe a principality of power manifests itself in a culture. It distorts and corrupts the true identity of God. See, if we're made in his image, the purpose of the enemy is to distort the image that God has created because he is a liar, isn't he? He's got to distort. So one of the ways he distorts is using this principality, and it's called individualism, where you believe that God exists just for you. Let me give you some news this morning. He does not and never will. End of story. For God so loved the world. The world is not you. It's the world. The Greek word there means cosmos. God is so concerned with the whole thing he's put together that he sends Jesus. Do you see what I'm saying? The gospel is never about individual sin. Of course it is, but it's not just about individual sin. We could do this, but the gospel has 
has a number of things that it affects. It, it's theological. It's you and God. It's sociological. It's you and your brother and sister. You see, the gospel is the answer for society. End of story. You come up with every plan you've lived in well light, but at the end of the day, the only way we truly are united in Christ, read it in Ephesians chapter 2, the only way that two cultures are ever brought together is through the blood of Jesus. You see? So it's sociological. Uh, it's psychological. It's about you sorting out yourself. But let me tell you this, it's ecological as well. It's about God on the earth. And so God's redemptive message is not solely about me and him. It's far bigger. Do you see what I'm saying? We have to understand that it's not solely about us. Of course it is. I need the forgiveness of my sin. But of course it's also much bigger than that. Let me just uh, explain that even in the life of Jesus. You see, it's true of Jesus. Jesus' temptation is not simply about Jesus' temptation. Well, it is. But it's far bigger than that. What Jesus undoes in his temptation is the three things, the three core issues that Adam and Eve made a mistake with in the Garden of Eden. So what Jesus is undoing in his temptation in that period of 40 days in the wilderness is not simply about him, though it does test him, it's about us. Because he has to deal with those three things. Do you see what I'm saying? And there are three things they deal with, and we can talk about this a lot, but the pursuit of pleasure is number one. The pursuit of possessions is number two. And the pursuit of power, one of the strongest ones, is number three. Those are the three things that Adam and Eve struggled with in the garden. I think First John talks about them as, uh, what's it, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. They're the three things that went wrong. So Jesus' story, even Jesus' story, is not just about Jesus. It fits into a far bigger story. Do you understand what I'm saying? So it's never just about you. There has to be a context in which we talk about us. Let me just illustrate this. This, is, this was certainly true in terms of the story of the life of Israel. <clears throat> when you think about it, you know, just think about you know, the commands. What are the Ten Commands are about? The first one's about loving God. The rest of them are about us, not about me. You see what I'm saying? God always exists. There's something bigger than me. So... Hopefully you can see this. Let me just draw this. So here, I'm going to be in somebody's way. I will move in a minute. We have me. Me's. Mm, that's true. Family. Extended family. This is the shape of a Hebrew community. And then there's a clan. And then there's a tribe. What comes after Tribe. Nation and what comes after nation, the hope of the gospel. That's the redemptive purpose of God. Once it was one nation, now it's all peoples. So I, I would say we could we could put our own lives against this. This is me. Hey, there's one. This is my family. This might be my friends, the people I connect with, or friendships I have. This is this could be Zion. But you've got to realise that you're only part of something much bigger. You're not an end in yourself. Amblecote's not an end in itself. It is not church, it's a congregation. Do you see what I mean? I'm just being a little bit, doing a little bit of a Tim here. But do you understand what I'm saying? You're part, isn't it? That's the hope, isn't it? You're part of something much bigger. You're also part of a tribe. Let's call that the region. And we've been doing some things as you have with the net. And then there's the nation. And then there's the nations. We solely read in a 21st century Western culture, you watch the adverts. It's all about that. 
I'm speaking on this next week at Amblecote about God being a community and drawing us into that community. God is a community. God is not one person. But he is one person. He's three people perfectly. Do you see what I'm saying? God is a community. It's an us. Let us. What does he say? Let me make man in my image. Let us. You see what I mean? It's always about us. It's never about me. It's never about one person. And you'll have seen the gas advert at Christmas, will you? Where the whole world revolves around one person's house. I tell you, that's the spirit of individualism manifesting itself in marketing. Now you think I've gone totally loopy. But that is the truth. Because that advert convinces you that you and your needs and your gas problems are the centre of the universe. When that is not the plan of God and never was. We are part of something much bigger. I tell you what, that gives me a real sense of security that everything doesn't depend on me. Because when I live in a world which I think revolves around me, then the, then the decisions I make, the life I live, the outcomes of my life count for too much. We are always part of a family. Thirdly, uh, the wilderness is a place of reimagining the future, reimagining the future. Another message of the wilderness that John comes out with is the message of repentance. So now you need to all start shaking. <coughs> I'm going to preach about repentance. <laughs> oh. And repentance is a word that's got lost in the vocabulary of churchianity. And so we've developed this word to, uh, or, or we've, we've only understood a very small fraction of what this word truly means. And uh, so I want to suggest to you that the word means more than just you turning away from your sin. But the Greek word is metanoa, which means to change the way you think. We'll talk about that in a minute. The Hebrew word for repentance is not even about turning away from sin. The Hebrew word means turn back to God. See, a total different emphasis. And, uh, and so what our, what, our, what our world needs to do, what our country needs to do, is not turn away from its sin. It needs to turn back to God. Because loads of people turn away from one lifestyle but join another or add another. See, Jesus is not something you add to your life. This is something, it's a radical rethink of your entire belief system. That's what repentance means. It means a changing of the way you think. It means about changing the way you think about how you think. Even. Do you understand what I mean? So, how can I, in some shape or form, withdraw mentally in some shape or form, from the spirit of this age that shapes and moulds so many people's lives. That's what repentance is about. It is about turning away from sin to some degree. But primarily, it's about rethinking or re-imaging the future. And of course, it wasn't just John that went out into the wilderness. The wilderness was recognised. The wilderness of the desert was recognised uh, uh, in the sort of period that John existed in, in, the, in the period of the Roman Empire as a place that not just, John wasn't the only person that went to the wilderness. The wilderness was recognized as a place, a margin of society. Um, and it was common practice for members of the Roman Empire to leave the centers of social and political power to find an open and empty space to begin to rethink what their lives were being conformed by. And so you would get tax collectors, soldiers, 
the wealthy and the powerful, left the centers of civilization, went into the desert to try and begin to reimagine a new future. And so the wilderness or the empty or exposed place is a place that we go to reimagine a different future. Which is why when John goes into the wilderness, his imagination and his thinking is shaped by the Holy Spirit. you see what I mean? So then he comes out, and he, do, he comes out with a message about the repentance of sin. But his message also, and I want to concentrate on this to help us this morning, has huge political consequences. Here's a man who comes out to announce an, an opposing person to Caesar. There's going to come a king... Who is going to change the face of planet Earth? Not just the Roman Empire. John comes out with a message that says that we've got to change the way we think. For no longer can we be ruled and dominated by empire thinking. No longer can Caesar have the final word on this subject. No longer can we allow ourselves to have these little effigies in all of our homes to which we offer some sort of sacrifice every time we enter our home because that's what happened then. The day, uh, uh, the time everybody had a little altar at which there was a picture of Caesar to which they burnt incense. This has all got to change, but it's not simply about that little altar. It's about my life has radically got to change because there's coming a king whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. It's a different kingdom. It's a different shape. And uh, so I think that open and empty place is a place where we reimagine the future. Sometimes God needs to take us there to unpack, empty the box of roses in order for us to gather again what it is God is saying. May God lead us into in-between spaces for us to really rethink what it is he wants to do and fully receive the message he wants to deposit in us. And then lastly, (coughs) open and empty places or the desert of the wilderness is a place where God creates a doorway of hope despite our past. Turn with me to Hosea Hosea chapter 2, verse 14. Hosea chapter 2, verse 14. Hosea is a great book, weird book, really, I say this this morning. Hosea receives the word of the Lord, and the Lord says, Go and marry a prostitute. I think I can test that word, wouldn't you? I think, you know, let's just pray about that a little bit longer. But prophetic people do weird things, but not for themselves. But they become incarnational of God's message, don't they, prophetic people, so often. And so that's why I have this little beard. (laughs) It's an upside-down triangle. This speaks against empire, that's what it does. (laughs) Yeah, I won't get invited again, clearly. Right. What will he be wearing next time he comes? Let me tell you a little bit of the history before we get to this passage. You'll all remember uh, the story, hopefully, of Achan. Uh, People of Israel leave the wilderness, enter the promised land. They take their first strategic city. The walls come down, piece of cake, lovely. Walls come down. God says Rahab and her family can go free. Uh, Everything else must be burnt except for the things that are precious, gold, silver, etc. That I want you to take, and that's going to come and be part of the temple treasure. There's a guy. They all say, hey, fantastic. But there's always a bad apple, isn't there? And his name's Achan. And Achan sees this amazing Babylonian robe that's all embroidered and looking beautiful. And he decides, um, actually, 
wouldn't notice if that doesn't get burnt, so he rifles that. And then a bit of gold and a bit of silver, because after all, you know, the Lord's got plenty, so me having a little bit doesn't really matter. Goes back to his tent, digs a hole, sticks it under his tent. And then, uh, you know, the people of Israel go off to war at Ai. Simple, simple thing. Not complicated. Not a complicated battle. Easy to win. But they lose. And then uh, what leadership does is, is takes a real position of authority and goes and whinges to God. <laughs> Which is what I do. Is, oh, what am I doing here? What if, why have I gone through all this wilderness experience just to end up defeated? Yeah, really positive man of faith, clearly. Of course, I would not react like that. And, uh, and then God says, I've just got a bit of a problem. So he says, what's that? Israel's unfaithful. What do you mean by that? Basically, you'll know the story. He narrows down. He says, somebody's, somebody's stolen some stuff. And God narrows it down, just like that. The nation comes, and then he narrows down the tribe, doesn't he? Then he narrows down the clan. Then the family group, doesn't he? Frightening stuff. And then the actual family, and it's Joshua's own family. Dear God, it's in my own family, you know. We have to face those problems sometimes as well, don't we? That everything's not always straightforward in our own family. And then he eventually picks out Achan, and Achan's condemned. And uh, quite rightly so, taken into the wilderness. Into a valley, which was called the Valley of Achor. The Valley of Trouble. And there he's stoned. The judgment of God is executed. And he's stoned. And God says, leave this pile of stones. It's an important part of science. It's got to be part. It's part of your story. Not a good place. We've all got those, haven't we? You know. Points in our lives that aren't good places to be. Where God maybe judges. Where bad things happen. But they're part of our story nevertheless. And they are things that occasionally God takes us back to. To remind us. About. Not always the story, but his love and his mercy. That's what happens in Hosea chapter 2. So here's Israel, a few hundred years on, now still unfaithful, suffering the same problems as she suffered under the leadership of Joshua. And that's generally the story of the church. We easily prostitute ourselves to other things, don't we? It's a bit hard, I know that word. I, I, I don't want to condemn you, but I give myself so much, so often, to so many other things. So this remains a problem. God says this, or the prophet says this, in verse 14 of chapter 2. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. Bring her into the wilderness. This is Israel. And listen to these words, and I will speak kindly to her. And I will give her vineyards from there. You know, there are things birthed out of points of trouble or chaos in our lives that are beautiful. There I will give her vineyards from there. In the Valley of Achor, God takes Israel back to a point in their story, to the Valley of Achor. But instead of this being a door, uh, it's, it, you know, instead of this being a manifestation of God's judgment or God's wrath, now it's a manifestation of his mercy and of his life and his hope. So the Valley of Achor, the very point in the story of Israel's life where God once judged them, becomes a doorway of hope and a better future. And I think there are times in our lives that God 
takes us back to, but not to condemn, not to depress us, but from those points to speak hope and a better future. Not only that, but it goes on to say this, and she will sing there as in the days of her youth. There is a song that comes out of the wilderness that speaks more about the past than it does about the present. And in that day she came from the land of Egypt and it will come about that in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me husband and no longer call me master. What a great thought. That the wilderness is also a place of a change of our relationship with Jesus. So often, isn't it? Sometimes the open and empty spaces create an opportunity for us to understand God not as master, but as a close companion and friend. And here we have Israel who's prostitute themselves to other gods. God takes them back in their story and then talks about Israel as being his husband. What a, or God being her husband. What a great thought, isn't it? So I pray that if there, and I'm sure there are points in your lives that have still left a mark in our lives. And often it's those that come to face us in our open and empty spaces. But I pray that those points will be for you a doorway of hope and a new future and a sense of a closeness to God that replaces one where he's your master and he and you're his servant.